0: John's Gospel once again. And uh, we want to focus on chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. This is the episode where Jesus heals the royal official's son. There's quite a bit packed into this passage. And uh, I'm excited to bring it to you. It is the third in a series of interviews. And all these interviews are linked. There's a purpose. The first interview, remember, was with a man named Nicodemus down in Jerusalem, right? And that interview was very interesting in the fact that it was carried on between Jesus and a religious man, a political man, a wealthy man, a righteous man. I mean, Nicodemus had quite a bit to credit himself, educated, well-to-do, well-respected, and so forth. A member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, a Pharisee. He comes seeking Jesus at night for a personal interview, largely because he wants to see if Jesus fits into his categories. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? A lot of people come looking at Jesus to see if he'll fit into their frame of reference. Jesus obliterates his frame of reference. For he comes talking to Jesus about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, Nick, you can't see the kingdom of God, lest you be born again. You got to have a dramatic change happen in your life. Something has to happen so dramatically, so powerfully, that it is the equivalent of a new rebirth. You've got to be born again. So Jesus takes all of his categories and just obliterates them. And he builds a new set for him. Now, we don't know what happened with Nicodemus in the short run right after that interview. We do know, however, at the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus comes with another Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea, and together they take Jesus' body and they bury it. Something significant happened to Nicodemus. He comes to faith. The second interview is totally unlike the first. The second interview happens a little further north, not in Judea, but up in Samaria in a district that is is, uh, uh, source, or the object, I should say, the object of great, great um, prejudice by the Jews. Those in the south, as well as those in the north in Galilee. Jesus must go up through Samaria to get to Galilee. We saw this last week. Unlike Nicodemus, the second interview is with a woman. Remember, it's not... A normal thing for a rabbi to talk to a woman in public. But Jesus is going to have this interview. She is unlike Nicodemus, where he is educated, sophisticated, spiritual, and on and on and on. She is the antithesis of Nicodemus. Total opposite. She is unlearned. She is flippant. She is unsophisticated, she is defensive, she is indifferent, and she is very materialistic. And she is immoral. And she's a failure as a woman with respect to relationships. She's failed in five marriages. She's an outcast in her own community. There's great prejudice against her. Not only because she's a woman, not only because she's a Samaritan, but because of her life conditions personally. Now, when she comes to that well to draw water in midday when no one else is around so that she doesn't have to deal with the other women gossiping about her, she doesn't expect to meet you-know-who. She has no clue that you-know-who is going to be there. But you-know-who knows who's going to be there. She doesn't come seeking Jesus, but Jesus comes seeking her. He knows the walls she's built up in her life. He knows her fears. He knows how terribly intimidated she is. And he persists to one at a time remove those blocks of indifference, defensiveness, resistance, He doesn't quit, and through that interview, he brings her to a point of faith where she says to people from her own village, could this be the Christ? Jesus brings Nicodemus to a point of faith. He brings this woman to a point of faith. The third interview this royal official from Galilee. Now, he's presumably a member of the royal court, uh, ruled by Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee. That's Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is not nearly as cruel as his father, Herod the Great, you remember. However, Herod Antipas is certainly not a spiritual man. He's not religious at all. He cares not really for the purity of Judaism. In fact, he's sleeping with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist gets all over him for this, among other things. It's Herod Antipas now who is going to have John arrested in just a little while and beheaded at the request of his stepdaughter. You think there's intrigue going on there? So here's a royal official coming from that kind of environment, and he's not coming because he's trying to get Jesus to fit into his category of things. He's not really interested in Jesus as a person, as a Messiah. He's not coming because he's religious. He's coming out of desperation. Now, in all three of these interviews, these vignettes, if you will, there is revealed all of us. Some of us have come to Jesus initially because we just kind of want to check him out and see if he fits into our framework. Will Jesus work? Or some of us have encountered Jesus and we never expected it. We're just going about our daily stuff and all of a sudden, bang, Jesus hits us, right? And we can't shake him as hard as we try. We go, oh, man. He talks to our hearts. He talks to our life. And we know he's talking to us. And we don't want to give in because we're so used to controlling things. Anybody can relate to that? (laughs) But he slowly, persistently begins to pull down those barriers. He knows us. He knows our needs. He knows our emptiness. He knows our frustration. And some of us come to him out of desperation. We've tried it all. We've done it all. Nothing's working. We are desperate. That's how I came to Jesus. Out of desperation. I'd lost everything. I had no hope in my life. I was desperate. And I cried out one night. God help me, and now look at me. (laughs) (laughs) Careful, (laughs) you may end up like me, oh my. So we've got these three interviews and they are significant, they are rich interviews for they are reflective of our own lives and our own motivations, our own situations. We can learn much. Now let's look at this issue with the royal official. We're told in verse 43, after the two days, which two days is he talking about? The two days he just spent up in Samaria. Remember, he ministered to the woman. She went to all the people in town. They came and they heard Jesus and they encountered him. And then they believed and they asked him to ta- stay two days. He stays two days with them. Much goes on. After those two days, now he's going to leave and he's going to go back up to Galilee, where he had set out for originally. John records a parenthetical statement here that's important to understand, because it has to do with the context. He says, Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus grew up in Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee. And we'll see later on when he goes back to Nazareth while he's up here ministering in Galilee, that he's not received. They don't believe in him. A prophet has no honor in his own country. They he's just, to them, he's just the son of a carpenter, Mary's boy, Do you see, not the Messiah. Well, that's very, very significant. He knows that. He knows that principle that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And for him, you see, Galilee is going to be safe. When he goes up there, there's not going to be too much notoriety. He's not going to be too popular. He won't draw too much attention to himself. Now, why is he concerned about that, do you suppose? Because it's not yet his hour. Meaning, if he stays in Judea, and especially around Jerusalem, It's going to get real hot. And I'm not talking about the weather. He's going to have a collision. He's on a collision course with the religious leadership in Israel, in Jerusalem. Jesus is a threat to the status quo. Isn't he always a threat to the status quo? Man, there's something about Jesus. You know, when you start messing with him, he's going to turn the status quo upside down, he's not going to leave you comfortable. He's going to comfort you, but he's going to create some great discomfort. And so, John the Baptist has moved out because he's suffered great, great opposition from the religious people. Remember, he called them a brood of vipers, not exactly designed to endear them to him. And as he leaves, Jesus takes over and begins to minister in and about Jerusalem and out in the Judean countryside. Word gets back to the Pharisees that Jesus is gaining more disciples than John. In other words, Jesus is gonna be a bigger headache to them than John was. Jesus is not yet ready for a confrontation with the Pharisees. So he says, I'm leaving town. I'm going up north. I'm going back to Galilee where it's safe because up in Galilee, they won't think that much of me. A prophet has no honor in his own country. So it'll be safe for him up there, safe for him to continue to develop his ministry. Do you follow? This is very, very important. Now, it's up in Galilee. He'll minister for the next year up in Galilee. That's how much time he spends up there. And it's up there in that Galilean ministry where he will do his most notable miracles. He'll preach his most notable sermons, the Sermon on the Mount being one of them. It's while he's up there in that year ministering in Galilee that he'll appoint his 12 apostles So Galilee becomes a center of, of real powerful ministry Galilee also is a place where the Jews who live there Are relatively tolerant as opposed to the Jews in the south? They're tolerant because they've come to live with a whole lot of Gentiles Galilee is populated not only by Jews, but also by Gentiles, and there's much Gentile trade back and forth. So you can see with the influx of all that Gentile influence, the Jews up there would grow very tolerant. And so it's it's an excellent place for Jesus to go to retreat and to prepare his ministry. So he's going to go up there. Now, incidentally, when he leaves Galilee and he goes back down to Judea to finish off his ministry in the last year, Galilee recedes from the forefront of the biblical picture until the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 16. Galilee comes back to the forefront, takes center stage. There is a valley on the southern edge of Galilee, called the Valley of Megiddo. That is where Armageddon will occur. You read about it yourself. Revelation 16, 16. Now, let's look at the passage. So we're told that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, so he's gone from Judea up through Samaria, and now he's finally arrived back in Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him. Now that welcome, that word welcome, literally in the Greek text, means that they, they honored him with an honor of sorts. Now let me tell you what I'm talking about. When you come to town, or when you come to visit people, and they welcome you, and they welcome you with some measure of fanfare, Don't you hope that they welcome you for you? Or do you think they might be welcoming you for what they think you can do for them? Do you catch the difference here? It's very interesting. When you look into the passage in the Greek text, the word that John chooses to use, translated by our English text, they welcomed him. It's a word used... That describes a very surfacey, temporal kind of welcome. Oh, it's good to have you. Oh, it's wonderful. What can you do for me? <laughs> is this your dad? Yes, it is. I am. Oh, what's your name? I'm Carl. Carl, good to meet you, Carl. Pleased to meet you. Yeah, Susie comes every week. She sits right in front. I know. Uh, Loves Jesus. I, I know she's a good kid. She's a good kid. <laughs> That's good to have you. Thank you, sir. All right. I may pick on you. Is that okay?
1: That's fine. (laughs) That's that's
0: only because you're sitting in the front. That's okay. We've got about an hour. I've got nothing else but girls around, so. (laughs)
1: That's okay. I'll sit elsewhere. Which girl am I?
0: (laughs) They welcomed him. John does not use the word doxa, which is another word that he could have very easily chosen, which we get the English word doxology from to glorify him, to give him the kind of honor that he is due. So they welcome him with kind of a surfacey welcome. They're focused on the miracles. Now read what John says. He says, they welcomed him. Oh, it's great to have Jesus. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Back in chapter 2, verse 22, verse 23. Remember when Jesus had been in Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, John also remarks that he also did very many miracles there, and people saw them. Some of those people were Galileans. They'd gone down to Jerusalem for Passover. They'd seen His miracles. Couple that with the fact that earlier in Cana, in Galilee, he had changed water into wine, did he not? So the Galileans are looking at Jesus. He's a wonder worker. That's the reputation he's carrying to them. The Galileans are very surface people. Their faith is not deep. And Jesus is going to endeavor to elevate their faith through this encounter with this royal official. So they welcome him. They're enthusiastic for him. But their enthusiasm is based on only the miracles. Their enthusiasm is not for him as a person or for his message, which are far more significant than the miracles. Far more significant. So their acceptance of him, then, amounts to just being conditioned. It's a conditional acceptance. It's like we say to each other, I love you because. Would you prefer to hear that or would you prefer to hear, I love you, period. How many like the former? How many prefer the latter? Yeah, I love you, period. That's right. Why? I love you, period, is not conditioned on anything. See, if I say I love you because you're handsome, you. <laughs> then does that mean if I'm not handsome, you won't love me? I love you because you're nice. Well, does that mean if I'm not nice, you won't love me? Yes. isn't that the truth of things see we are always qualifying adding conditions to our love we don't necessarily think that that's what we're doing we don't realize that we're doing that but we kind of mindlessly say those things don't we i love you if you i love you because not just i love you do we not want to be loved unconditionally unconditionally for who we are Warts and all. Is that okay? That's what we strive for. That's what we hunger for. But guess what? We are not, by and large, loved just for who we are. We are very, very good at conditional love. And because we're so good at conditional love, we're all running around trying to qualify. We're all seeking approval. We're all saying, would you please love me? Would you please love me? I'll be good. I'll dress right. I'll take a shower. (laughs) (laughs) Are you getting my point? The Galileans' acceptance of Jesus is very conditional, and it's conditional upon just what they saw in terms of the miraculous. And Jesus is going to rebuke them for that. Now, in his rebuke, he's not rejecting them, nor is he rejecting faith based on miraculous things. He's just saying that's not the highest kind of faith. Faith based on circumstances. Faith based on having to see something happen. Faith based on the miraculous He's not the kind of faith that will sustain you through the storms of life. He's trying to move people from having to walk by sight to walking by faith. Paul says that, doesn't he? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, I believe it is. We walk not by sight, but by faith. I believe in you. I believe in you no matter what. You invite me to lay my requests. You invite me to bring my supplications. You invite me to ask. You say it's perfectly okay and that I should do that. And when I do it with thanksgiving, you say that your peace will guard my mind and heart. You do not say that you'll do things the way I want you to do them. Therein lies the tension. Do I trust you no matter what? Do I have faith in you no matter what, or do I set the criteria? And must you meet my agenda, Jesus? Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm trying to do here? Would you agree that this is very important? I think it's essential. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. So he goes back up there, he goes right to Cana. He'd been there before, he turned water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now the Greek word indicates that it isn't a grown son, it is a little boy, a young son. Lay sick at Capernaum. Jesus is in Cana, Capernaum is about 25 miles away. This royal official is going to make a trip of 25 miles He doesn't know Jesus, never met Jesus, has never seen him do anything. All he has is what he's heard, the reputation of a healer and a wonder worker. Not exactly a strong faith. Nonetheless, he's going to seek Jesus out. He makes that trip. His son is sick. On the verge of dying, he's been sick for some time, apparently. When this man had heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. Now this is pretty significant. You've got to be pretty desperate if you're a member of the royal court of Herod to go to Jesus, travel some 25 miles, based on just his reputation, to seek him out when everything in Herod's court is opposite to what you're looking for. You've got to be pretty desperate to go to Jesus so that you don't care anymore what people think. You don't care anymore what people are going to say, especially Herod, your boss. So he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. He begged him. Does that sound like a desperate man? Absolutely. Absolutely. How does Jesus reply in verse 48? Does Jesus reply with a great deal of sensitivity, apparently? Does he reply with um, a genuine earnestness to help this man? No, his reply seems to be on the surface harsh, indifferent, insensitive, Even resistant. Jesus, at the urging of this man to come, to come with him 25 miles to Capernaum, he's got a desperate need, his little boy is dying. Jesus says, in effect, You people are only interested in the spectacular. Your only link to me is your love for the sensational. Now, he's talking to this man, but he's talking through him to all the people around. Now, we don't know who they are, probably other Gentiles, I mean, uh, Galileans, and maybe even some members of Herod's court who's part of this man's entourage, if he has one. Jesus is going to use this occasion to see if there will be anybody who will believe in him. Just believe in him. And so he rebukes, these people rebuking this man don't we grow weary of people who would continually seek us out for only that which we can do for them isn't it nice to be sought out just for who you are to be appreciated and valued for who you are to be invited over for dinner not because you're the pastor just because you're Hungry. Do <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? We grow weary and so does Jesus grow weary of being solicited solely for what he can do. He wants to be accepted for who he is, just like we would. He wants to be loved for who he is. Not if he does something or because he can do something. He does not want to be regarded only as a worker of wonders. And the Galileans were miracle mongers. They looked for miracles under every bush. These guys were only into the spectacular. And Jesus doesn't want to be regarded only as a wonder worker while his message, while his person is either disregarded or worse yet, rejected. Very important. I don't know about you, but I love the spectacular. Do you? I mean, I love to be excited. I I like to see those things. I go, oh, wow, did you see that? I find myself drawn to to that. There's part of me that really looks for that, that's titillated by it, fascinated with it, the spectacular, the miraculous. I don't think I'd be normal if I weren't. But we need to understand that there's some, though that is true of all of us, and there's, that's part of our humanity, part of us, we need to manage it. We need to live our lives with a healthy biblical perspective and not such a material perspective. Again, Paul says, we walk not by sight, but by faith so that even if these things don't happen, my faith is not dependent on them, my faith is in Jesus. Whether or not he does any kind of spectacular rescue, whether or not he comes through and delivers me in the way that I think he ought to. If you were this nobleman, if you were this official, how would you respond to Jesus' rebuke? If you were part of the crowd, what would you think was going on? When Jesus says, you people, you won't believe in me unless you see some miracle, some sign, your faith is shallow, how would you respond? Would you turn away, irritated, petulant? Would you stamp your feet and say, well, who does he think he is? Would you give up on the spot, thinking that there's no hope here, Jesus is obviously resistant, he doesn't want to help? Would you refuse to receive the rebuke would you say well what would you do what does the nobleman do he goes right through all that stuff he goes right through jesus statement he goes right through the rebuke he comes to jesus in verse 49 he says i'm not interested in signs and wonders that's not why i'm here My little boy is dying. dying. And if you don't come, he will die for sure. sure. Can you feel his urgency? Can you feel his desperation? He's saying, I'm not here. I'm not into signs and wonders. I'm not into all. All I know is I have this desperate need. You've got to come. Because if you don't come, he's going to die. And he's my little boy. He's my son. He is indeed a concerned father, and rightly so. He has the kind of intensity to his life right now that a drowning person has when they clutch on to someone who's saving them. Do you know what I'm talking about? As a little boy, I almost drowned one time, a couple times. I was hanging out with some friends, and they threw me in a pool. I didn't know how to swim. I was just a little guy. Threw me in a pool. They all left. (laughs) In the deep end. And I'm going down for about the last time. You know, I'm thinking, oh, this is it. I'm dying. Oh, no. I'm flailing around in the water. No one's around. They'd all left. My friends. Some woman, it was an apartment complex. Some woman heard the flailing around. She was in an upper story, second or third story apartment. She looked out the window. She saw me flailing on the water, little boy. She ran down the stairs, jumped over a fence, dove into the pool. I felt the impact of her diving into the pool. And all I could do is I could do everything, just just relax. Help is here. I mean, I'm going down, glob 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 glob, full of water, but I'm believing help is here. And she grabbed a hold of me, and I grabbed a hold of her you know what I'm talking about? This guy is grabbing hold of Jesus like a drowning person grabs a hold of that one who would rescue them. He's desperate. And Jesus replies to him, Okay, okay, we'll go, we'll go. I'm right with you. I'm right with you. I just hope we get there before it's too late. Is that what the royal official wants to hear? Yes. The royal official wants to hear, okay, let's go, let's go. Is that how Jesus responds? No. That's not how Jesus responds. Jesus' response comes to him as a complete surprise. Jesus says, you may go. Your son will live. You may go, your son will live. Would you think if you were him, the the royal official, would you think that Jesus is taking you seriously? Do you feel any sympathy coming from him? Wait a minute, you don't understand. You may go, your son will live. He was convinced that Jesus' presence was necessary. Jesus had to be there physically. Now, part of the reason that John records this is that he is going to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord over time and space. All he has to do is speak the word. All he has to do is think the word. And that boy will be healed. Jesus' presence is not necessary in this particular situation. And his words to that man, to that father, impose a very, very stiff test. A stiff test of faith. The official has no sign. He has no miracle. All he has is Jesus' bare words and his reputation to go on. That's all he's got. The question now for him is would he go back to Capernaum, or would he stay there and continue to beg Jesus to come? Would he take Jesus at his word, or would he stay? Well, he rises to the occasion. He meets the demand for faith. John writes that he took Jesus at his word. Literally, it says, the man believed the word. He believed. He believed the word. He took Jesus at his word. He obeyed him. He went, and he got blessed. He got blessed. There's a lesson there for us that's significant. Believe Jesus. Obey him. Get blessed. Believe Jesus. Obey him. Get blessed. Real simple formula. He says it all through the book. He says, if you trust me, You'll obey me. If you obey me, I'll bless you. The automatic consequence, the automatic result of obedience to his design of things is... Blessed. It's built in. It's built in. Works every time. Every time. Verse 53. Well, he, took, well, he took Jesus' word He departed. He went on his way His servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour, one o'clock in the afternoon. The father marveled at the coincidence. What a coincidence. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? It says, the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. What's the result? So he believed. And his household believed. Now I want you to notice, there is a qualitative difference between the believing in verse 50 and the believing in verse 53. This is the lesson. This is the point of this passage. In verse 50, he believed the word. Verse 53, he believed, period. The idea is the last part, the last verse, verse 53, it's an absolute belief. He believed in Jesus. Jesus wants us to read the word. He wants us to believe the word. He wants us to step out and obey it. He wants us to step out in faith in that that this is true. And as we step out in faith and we believe it and we act upon it, we get blessed. Hopefully, that blessing leads us to believe in Jesus, who is the source of the word, so that our faith now is absolutely, totally, conclusively in him, in Jesus. Now this is very very important <laughs> because Jesus is the source of life, isn't he? He says to his enemies, he says believe in me. Believe in me. Unless we believe in Jesus. Unless we believe in Jesus, there is no salvation. You can say, well, "I believe the Bible." I believe in church. I believe in this, and I believe in that. And I've done what the Bible said, and I got blessed. Sure, there are principles God's built into the universe. You do what the Bible says, you will get blessed. Believing in Jesus is not necessarily a precursor for getting blessed. Except when you're talking about being saved, then Believing in Jesus is an absolute necessity. Believing in Jesus means no matter what happens in my life, no matter what the circumstances look like, my faith in him is dependent on nothing external to me. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus, and I'm holding on to him Like a man who was drowning and who clutched on to the one who dove in to save him. I believe in Jesus. And his whole household was influenced because they saw his faith in Jesus and his whole house get saved. You know why some of our households don't get saved? Because they don't see the kind of fervent faith and belief in Jesus in us that we are kind of alluding to and grasping at. Something miraculous, something powerful happens in other people's lives when they encounter real, live, living Christians. People who are truly committed to Jesus. People who are in love with Jesus. People who don't need anything else. Jesus, that's all I need. You're the only person I need in my life. Those kind of people impact lives. They impact lives. Powerful. A girl came to me after the service last night. She came to me a few weeks ago. She's been backsliding. She's been in an, in an adulterous relationship, a, a, a fornicating relationship. She's not married. A fornicating relationship with a man for four years. She came full of grief, full of guilt, and she, she confessed her sin, and she says, ah, she says, I want to come back. I've been wrong. I've been doing this. And I said, well, the Bible says confess your sin, repent. Jesus will forgive you, cleanse you of all the guilt and unrighteousness. So she did. A few, just a couple weeks ago, she was back last night. She brought her boyfriend. I said to her, have you repented? I mean, are you cleaning things up? She says, oh, yes. She says, but he needs Jesus. Would you talk to him? You've got to do it. You come. Are you with me? See the parallel? I said, no. No, I'm not going to come. I'm not going to talk to him. You let Jesus talk to him through your life. You let him see that you love Jesus more than you love him. Because if you ever do marry him, it's your love for Jesus that's going to sustain your love for him. Am I right, Betty? Yes. It's your love and faith and hope and trust in Jesus that's going to speak to him most loudly. Make sense? He calls this man and he calls the rest of us to a faith in him. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of whether or not we get our miracle, (laughs) Regardless of anything, believe in Jesus. We live by faith, not by sight. Now that raises an interesting question. This is kind of a corollary. Because this young boy is healed, the question is raised, and because this passage is used as one of the proof texts for a segment of people who say in the church that everyone will be healed, In this life. The question is, will everyone be healed? I would submit no. Now, the people who say that that's wrong, they would say, well, I don't have enough faith. That's not the issue. The issue is this. We are living in between the first and the second comings of Christ. We are living in the already, but the not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet here fully. The perfect has not come, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when the perfect comes. What's that? Jesus and the fulfillment, the consummation of his kingdom. That's when we'll see everybody perfect. That's when we'll see everybody restored. That's when we'll see the resurrection of the dead. That's when we'll see God's glorious kingdom come to fruition. Not today. Well, what are we left to think? I think that we can expect, I think that we can expect, I think that we can have a great confidence in substantial healing. Not total, not perfect, but substantial. Not everybody's gonna get healed, but a lot of people do. More do than not. Doesn't Jesus invite us to come and pray? Doesn't he say lay requests? Doesn't he say bring your supplications with thanksgiving? Sure, he invites us to pray. He means for us to ask. But ask. Not with the expectation nothing's going to happen, as most Christians do. Most Christians pray today, and I know because I talk to them, and they pray only because prayer is the last resort. They've tried everything else, they've done everything else, and someone suggests, well, maybe we should pray. Oh, has it come to that? <laughs> and then they do a prayer, but you see, the prayer really has no real confidence to it. They don't really think anything's going to happen. And so they pray the prayer, and they walk away. They don't pray and then wait and watch. I try to remember when I pray to watch, something's going to happen here. I believe that when we pray, something happens. Now, it may not be what I think should happen. It may not be what I think at all. It may be that God is going to, not is going to, he does hear my prayer, but he's going to do his thing in response to my prayer, the best thing that I could even ever hope. You ever walked up to somebody and held out your hand and, 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 and reached for them to hey, shake your hand? And you,
1: <laughs>
0: isn't that rude?
1: Isn't that rude? Very rude.
0: I think sometimes that's how we pray. We, we, we kind of give cursory attention perfunctory attention to this person that we're going to shake hands with, that we're going to engage. And in effect, we just end up ignoring them, really. That's how we pray sometimes. We don't engage... I'll, I'll be all right there. <laughs> we don't engage and stay there with them. When we pray, we, we, we need to, to engage Jesus and, and, and talk with him and, and, and stay with him and, and wait And watch. Confident that something's going to happen. Something's going to happen here. This man is going to go away changed today. That's true, Zach. (laughs) He's going to go away changed. He'll never forget this day. Why? Because we waited. We addressed nothing maybe we expect something's going to happen here so when we pray watch and wait confident in Jesus I know you're there I know you're here I know you care My trust is in you. Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord Jesus with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. I promise. It's a guarantee. I believe in Jesus. Period. (coughs) Amen? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we bow before you today, thankful for all that you've done, but most thankful because you revealed yourself to us. If you've not given up and you continually work unrelentingly in our lives to purify our faith so that our faith is not dependent on any particular circumstance any particular event, our faith is in you, period. We love you. We trust you. Lord, some of us this morning are struggling with that. We live in a culture, we live in an age that relationships, intimacy, is almost a fossil We don't really know how to relate to you. We're so used to performing for each other to be accepted and acceptable. But your word says that you love us in an unqualified manner, and you long for us to love you in an unqualified manner. Help us this morning. Help us to receive your love. Help us to receive your acceptance. Set us free to love you. Set us free that we might be able to have a full confidence in you, no matter even if the earth quakes and the mountains fall into the sea. We are unshakable, unmovable, because our confidence is in you. Help us, O oh God. We give you thanks this morning. You are a great God. And you have been merciful to us. And we are a thankful people. Keep your eyes closed.
1: I believe in Jesus